All right, if you have your Bibles this evening, would you turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6, part 3 and uh, of this particular lesson of being a word-filled teacher or a Bible-filled teacher. In Deuteronomy 6, 6 and 7, as we look ultimately at how to really disciple others, uh, you know, how, if someone's really struggling in their life, how do I disciple them? How do I walk with them? Uh, how do I lead them uh, in a path that is appropriate? We're going to look at that this evening uh, further as we have uh, over the last few weeks where we were over this. All right, Deuteronomy chapter 6, if you found your place in God's word, let's look at verse 6. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. And thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, when thou risest up. Verse 8, and when thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thy hand, and they shall be as frontlets uh, between thine eyes, and thou shalt write them upon the posts of thy house and on thy gates. The word of God, as Moses is giving instruction here by the inspiration of the Spirit of God, is the, the fact of the authority and the prominence and the preeminence of God's word in every area and facet of our lives. Let's look at, so we're going to look at this idea tonight. Let's go over and ask for his blessings and then we will continue to look further at being a word-filled teacher. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your marvelous grace. Lord, I thank you, uh, Father, for the opportunity to freely assemble. Lord, I know that's uh, not, some cannot do that. Lord, I also thank you for uh, the word of God that we have in our language. Father, I thank you for the breath that we breathe. Lord, I thank you for the provision and the clothing and, and the house and the job that you've given to us. And Father, tonight as I have an opportunity and the great privilege of opening your holy word, Lord, I pray that I would preach and teach as you give utterance. And so, Lord, I commit myself to thee. Help me to deliver the words that ought to be spoken. And, Father, I pray for those who are listening, that, Lord, you'd refresh their spirits. I pray that you'd encourage and strengthen and comfort in a way that only you can, Lord, as we have once again a time away from the busyness of life and the busyness of the week, and we have an opportunity to assemble Assemble around your word, and so, Lord, we commit all that will transpire into thy hands. I love you. In the precious name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Picking up where we left off, I've skipped a number of the items we've gone through, but I wanted to pick up really on the idea of belief. Turn with me to uh, Numbers, well, you see it there. If you want, you can turn to Numbers chapter 20, verse 12. In Numbers chapter 20, verse 12, In verse 12, it says, And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron, Because ye believed me not to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore ye shall not bring this congregation to the land which I have given them. This is where, obviously, Moses takes the rod, he, he smacks the rock on the second time they were getting water, and they failed to give God the glory. And, uh, obviously, because ye believed me not... Moses and Aaron displayed a lack of faith in God before an entire congregation. And God said, you're not going into the promised land because you've mishandled what I told you to do. 
The fact is, as a leader, whether you're a leader as a parent, whether you're a leader in the workplace, leader in church, wherever you are leading, when we display a lack of belief or faith in God and fail to sanctify God, put Him apart as a special preeminence that God is not happy. And God's desire, and just looking at several verses, an, aban- an abandonment of God in belief. Realize this, that in Kadesh Barnea, with the twelve spies, ten were bad, two were good, ye believed him not, nor hearkened to his voice, Israel would not listen to God. You can see that there, highlighted and underlined. And yet another verse, Deuteronomy 32, 20, children in whom is no faith, a froward generation. So there's continuing generations of people, and, and as I was just reading in Judges this week, I started I'm in several different places, different plans that I'm working through, and one of them, it mentioned when Joshua died and the elders that succeeded him, the next generation who had not seen God's works, they fell into, they, they not fell, but they chose to go into idolatry. But in every generation, there must be believers of faith. They could not enter in because of unbelief. Why could the the nation of Israel, with the twelve spies, ten were bad, and the ten discouraged an entire nation, everyone twenty years of age and up, could not enter. They were ungrateful, they murmured, they complained, and they couldn't enter into the promises of God. Why? Because of unbelief. It is important that God is believed in. And not as a mental ascent or not as a mental exercise that I believe in God, but a complete reliance upon Him for every facet of life. Remember this when Peter was drowning as Jesus walked to him, and Peter says, that, You know, if you bid me to come, I'll come. And Jesus, Jesus says, Come. And he gets out of the boat, he walks on the water, he looks at the waves, oh my, he sinks. And then Jesus lifts him up, and Jesus tells him again, Oh, thou of little faith. In Mark 4 40, Jesus said unto them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? The disciples were in the storm. Again, the disciples wanted to cast out a demon out of a child, and they couldn't. Jesus, again, oh, faithless and perverse generation. Is it important that we as believers step forward in faith in our life? And we say we ought to, I live by faith, I live... But I want to, in the reality, if I'm going to be a word-filled teacher and I'm going to be leading or exemplifying to others, it's not just my responsibility as a pastor, it's your responsibility, many of you, you know, and every one of us, to be an example of faith. What does faith look like? It is following and believing the promises of God. It says in Hebrews eleven six, 6, but without faith it is impossible. That gives no room for pleasing God apart from faith. Realize this, when I left the military, I was making a very good salary and I went to Bible college, I stepped out in faith. I didn't have a job. In the first six weeks I didn't have a job. 
when we stepped out, and and maybe there's times in your life you stepped out by faith. I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm going to do it anyways, and I'm going to do what God wants me to do. I don't know how I'm going to pay for it. I do know that it is God's will. And so you step out, and you see God do abundantly above all that you could ask or think, according to Ephesians 3, 20 and 21 of our verse of the month. To be a word-filled teacher, we have to be a people that are living by faith. You can't talk about the, the events, you can't talk about the character of God and talk about the salvation of God if you yourself are not a person of faith. Because it's my faith that brought me to Christ for salvation. I'm putting my dependence upon my eternity, upon what the Bible says about Jesus in the Bible. In Hebrews 3, 12 and 13, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Unbelief, unbelief spells I'm departing from God because I don't believe God can do it. I don't trust that God will do it. I don't trust that what God has given to me is going to transpire. As I pick up here, this faith, this eye that sees the invisible, is the heart of godliness. So it should come as no surprise to God's people that God rebukes them for what? For unbelief, their failure to see God in their circumstances. So I look around as just Peter did, and he realizes, listen, I'm drowning. Everything is falling apart in my life. Everything is breaking. Everything is whatever the case in your life. You're just saying, I'm in a great trial. I'm falling. I'm drowning. Whatever the case you may be in your life. And you think that God is not there. And it's at those moments that I just need to rely and pull my hand up as Peter did. He had no other recourse but to reach his hand up and wait for the Savior to grab him. He needed the faith to trust that Jesus would help him. It's at the heart of godliness. In fact, unbelief rests at the core of anger, depression, covetousness, immorality, and all other vices. Immorality, because I don't believe that God can provide me a spouse in the timing that I want. I don't believe that God's going to give me someone that's going to satisfy me, so I need to do it myself. So the lesson here for disciple makers is obvious. The rebuke that is given, for instance, if someone is dwelling in an addiction, whatever it is, they're living in an unbelief that God can help them with whatever is causing them to go into that addiction. Sin is a manifestation. Sin is an outward test of what is going on in my heart. That was the pattern of the prophets, the apostles, the Lord himself. The fact of revealing their heart and Jesus' actions revealed his heart and he was without sin. The scriptures will tell us what is wrong. Jesus always, Jesus is God and so he was, you know, he's without sin. Impeccable is the theological term. He'd be impeccable. He's incapable of sin because he is God. He's the very standard for what is right though he was tested. Now the scriptures teach us how to make it right. 
And Paul would tell Timothy that the inspired scriptures have a function. Here's a third function in the life of a believer, and that is correction. As we go back, as you look in the scriptures. Now, all scriptures given by inspiration of God is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, the third one. And so in this idea of correction... It comes from a word there in the Greek that means to make, standing, make something stand up again. That correction is, I've fallen down, I need to get back up, I've hurt myself, now how do I get back up? Now, suppose you're backing out of the parking lot here and you back into someone else. You dent a vendor. Now, you're thinking, oh my. Now, obviously, in a larger church, you're thinking, oh man, I gotta go find this person, go, you know. You might be in a hurry, and I wanna run off, and I wanna do what I wanna do, but I gotta delay my plans, because I need to go tell the person about what I've done, and to make sure that the damage I've done is corrected to the appropriate amount, and make the exchange, whatever, with your insurance, and, and go on forth with that. Or, an individual can run ahead and go on without ever saying anything, but it's going to show their heart. Man needs to be restored. Just as you would check on a vehicle and make sure that it got back to the condition that it was prior to your hitting it, God's desire is to continue to check on us to make sure we get back to the condition we ought to be in. The process is more than just saying, well, I guess I need to more, be more careful next time, so I shouldn't hit that car. I guess I'll be more No, there is some corrective action that's needed to correct that vehicle. Let's look at uh, Proverbs 28.13. It captures the two most important elements of this idea of correction, Proverbs 28.13. The first is confession, the second is, forsake, the second is forsaking. In verse, Proverbs 28, 13, verse 13 of Proverbs 28, He that covereth his sin shall not prosper, but whoso what confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. So the first part of Confession is making an offense, an offense right with God or making an offense right with others. So if I've offended someone and I know about it or they tell me about it, then I need to make it right. Confession involves agreeing with the accuser, which could be God saying, listen, you've wronged me. It could be involve agreeing with the person to whom you've wronged that you're guilty of the charges that have been brought against you. You know, a direct manner for confessing your sin is to, you know, openly admit I was wrong, that I said whatever I said, and you would fill in the blank there. Be specific. And then you ask, will you forgive me? By asking for forgiveness from the offended party, you are accepting full responsibility for your wrong actions. Now, it doesn't mean that the other individual didn't do wrong. It doesn't mean that they didn't say anything wrong or they didn't do anything wrong. 
but it is on my behalf taking responsibility for all the wrong that I personally am responsible for. You know, you can be sorry that something happened. You can do something, and for instance, let's go back to that illustration. I bumped into a fender, I dented it, whatever, scratched it, and I drive off, and then I come back, and someone says, hey, you hit my car. Oh, yeah, I'm so sorry about that. Will you forgive me? And then they're gone. I'm thinking, okay, well, there's still damage here. You need to fix it. You need to correct it. You know, I can be sorry that, for instance, maybe I hit, you know, John's or Joe's car or whatever, but the responsibility is to make it right. An apology, it might include a full acceptance, but it often doesn't, and it doesn't accept responsibility. You know, God is willing to forgive anyone that comes to him in repentance, but, but, God is not willing to forgive until you're willing to accept and agree with the charges that God has against you. Taking responsibility. God, I'm sorry that I spoke a harsh word to another individual. God, I'm sorry that I was rude to this person. Will you forgive me? Then I need also, and if I'm truly sorry with God, I'll go make it right with that individual. Because it's not just my attitude towards God, it's also my attitude towards that person. Look with me at Psalm 32 5. I want to look at a several verses here about the absolute need for a personal responsibility and a, a, a specificity of confession. What I'm saying is, is you're, you're clearly stating what you've done wrong and that it was wrong before God. We're working on that with our daughter. You know, it's not just I'm sorry. It's will you forgive me for what I did? Disrespectful or whatever. In verse 5 of Psalm 32, I acknowledged my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord. Thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin, see law. What's he saying here? He says, God, I'm going to confess my transgressions. I've done wrong. Verse, uh, Psalm 38, 18. In verse 18, for I will declare mine iniquity, I will be sorry for my sin. In Psalm 51, 1 through 3. Again, Psalm 51, David's had the sin with Bathsheba, the adulterous affair. Verse 1, Psalm 51, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy mercies, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgression, and my sin is ever before me. And the verse would go on, and he would you know, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. But he's saying here, God, I have royally messed up, and I'm sorry. They're my sins. They're not somebody else that made me. It's not that I was just having a bad day. No, I'm personally accepting the responsibility for my actions. And as we mentioned earlier, until I come to the place in my life 
that I'm personally responsible for my attitude, my reaction to other people, oftentimes you may exist in a place of depression or struggles because of a failure to appropriately deal with the situation. Because you're not willing. Yes, that person may have done you wrong. Yes, they might have said something to you. But how you respond and how you deal with it in your heart and how you deal with them is ultimately an aspect of am I truly confessing my sins to God? In Luke 15, 18, I will rise and go to my father, says the prodigal son, and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. He's saying, listen, I've sinned against God and I've sinned against my dad. In 1 John chapter 1, verses 7 through 10, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So what, is, what happens when you confess sin? It makes reconciliation possible. I come up to the individual and I say, I am sorry for what I said. Whether they've apologized or not, I come up to them and I am sorry for what I've said. By my humility to express that I've done wrong, that other individual now has the opportunity. You've made it right with them. You've made it right before God. That other individual now has the opportunity to say, I forgive you, and that relationship is restored. Now, they may not say, I don't forgive you. Well, that's between them and God. But at least you're reconciled with God because you've done your responsibility before God to make it right. To be reconciled to someone means that the former relationship that was fractured or estranged is now exchanged for one of peace and favor. You know what God does to a repentant sinner in Isaiah 43, 25? He said, I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake and will not remember thy sins. God says, listen, you confess it, it's forgotten. In Isaiah 55, 7, let the wicked forsake his ways and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. The aspect is, you ask God to forgive you from the genuineness of your heart, it's forgiven. The problem is, many times I have a harder time forgiving myself than I do of asking God to forgive me. And I keep beating myself up over what I've done wrong. How could I be so foolish? How could I do this? But I have to just have a belief that what I've asked God, he will do it, and that I am truly forgiven. Now the second part of correction, as we looked at in that verse, is the forsaking there. Proverbs 28, 13. And forsaking means a willingness on my part, a willingness on the part of the offender to make restitution. In Luke 19, 18, let's look at the idea, Luke 19, 8, verse 8, Luke 19, verse 8, what does Zacchaeus do when confronted with the truth of his sin by the Savior? Luke 19, 8. Now, Zacchaeus was a tax collector, and he would rob people for his own gain. The taxes that he would 
extort from those who were paying their taxes. He would change the rates so he could make the taxes whatever he wanted to, and he made himself very wealthy in doing such. And in Luke 19, 8, And Zacchaeus stood and said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. What's he saying? I have done wrong, and if, as it comes to my mind, I will make it right up to four times. Out fourfold. You know, it means accepting certain restrictions in this forsaking. Some of these restrictions are permanent. Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden and never allowed back in because of their sin. Sometimes the actions that we do do leave us with additional restrictions in our life. Moses never got into the promised land because he struck the rock the second time Israel was needing water in the desert when God told him to speak to it. Now, he did get to go to the Mount of, on the Mount of Transfiguration. Obviously, that was there in the promised land, but that was there at the, uh, you know, at the revelation of Jesus in all of, his, in all of his glory, as was seen at the time. The prodigal son of Luke 15 was restored to fellowship and honor with his father, but he never received another inheritance. The remaining inheritance belonged to his brother. There was nothing left to give to the repentant prodigal. Now, there's some differences in attitude of repentance. First of all, King David, if you were to look at 2 Samuel chapter 12, after his sin with Bathsheba, 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13. you want to read the passage of scripture about this, verses 1 through 25, but verse 13 uh, is a good synopsis. Verse 13, and David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, the Lord also hath put away thy sin, thou shalt not die. So there's a rich man who has many flocks. There's a poor man who has one lamb that he's raised up. It's a close pet. The rich man has a stranger come. This is the verses that are there prior. The rich man goes and grabs a poor man's only lamb. He's serves it for dinner, and David hears this story that this rich man who has many sheep goes and steals the one sheep that the poor man has as his only pet and his only lamb, and the rich man serves it to his friend on a plate. And David is so furious, he said, let him restore fourfold, and that's exactly what would happen. So in verses 8 through 14, Nathan tells this story, and then he comes to the conclusion of his story, and he says, David, thou art the man. And David repents, Psalm 51. But what about King Saul as another man that was confronted? There is 1 Samuel chapter 15, 1 Samuel chapter 15, particularly verses 10 and 11. Saul was told to kill all of the Amalekites. He left King Agag. And he left all the best of the flocks. The, the best, I mean, the, you know, all of the best herds. I mean, you know, if they were sickly, I will kill them. But if they're really good and really healthy, we'll keep them alive. God told him, wipe out everything. Saul says, well, I'll keep the best and I'll sacrifice it. Then Saul went on to make a sacrifice. Samuel, the prophet, comes in verse... 
in this passage of Scripture, verses 10 and 11. Then came the word of the Lord unto Samuel, saying, It repenteth me that I have set up Saul to be king, for he has turned back from following me, and hath not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried unto the Lord all night. Verse 13, And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said unto him, Blessed be thou the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What meaneth then this bleeding of the sheep in mine ears, and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God. And the rest we have utterly destroyed. And Samuel said unto Saul, Stay, and I will tell thee what the Lord hath said to me this night. And he said unto him, Say on. And Samuel said, When thou wast little in thine own sight, wast thou not made the head of the tribes of Israel? And the Lord anointed thee king over Israel. And the Lord sent thee on a journey and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners of the Amalekites, and fight against them until they be consumed. Wherefore then didst thou not obey the voice of the Lord, but didst fly upon the spoil, and didst evil in the sight of the Lord? Saul, when he was confronted, he didn't repent. David accepted the consequences. Saul only hated the consequences of his action. Please, 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 I'll, I'll, I'll do what's right. Just give me the kingdom back. He tried to negotiate the negative outcomes of his actions. David was grieved over being estranged from the Lord. He was willing to accept whatever God gave. He wanted fellowship, and he wanted to be back useful to God, but that was not the case of Saul. You see, if you forsake it, you accept the responsibility, you accept the consequences of your actions. You see, reconciliation really is at the heart of the gospel, that we are being reconciled, we are being reunited, or united, I guess I should say, united with God through Jesus Christ. We need to stay reconciled to God. If we're going to disciple others, I need to stay close and reconciled to God. I need to have no sin between my soul and the Savior. 2 Corinthians 5, 18-21 tells us that we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. And so we must become a Bible-filled, word-filled teacher on the subject of reconciliation. Look with me here at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 through 21. We'll go on to the next slide here shortly. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 18. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit, means to know that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you, and Christ said, Be ye reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That's 2 Corinthians 5, 18-21. But notice the word reconcile, or reconciliation. It's used repeatedly. That's what we've been given. So here, I forgot to put that up there, but scriptures teach us how to keep it right. And so this idea of child training, or paideia, the Greek word, means upbringing, training, instruction, attained by discipline or correction. It denotes, in quotes, the training of a child, including instruction, hence discipline, correction. It is the Christian discipline that regulates character. Now, from this word, you would get the word pedagogy, which is a study of how to teach instruct, like, you know, like a teacher teaching children. 
and it ought to characterize those of us as parents and how we uh, parent our children. Children <laughs> don't effectively rear themselves. A child doesn't know. I mean, a child is, we're all born sinners. We need the instruction of a uh, spiritual person in our lives to give us the instruction of how to relate. Here's a, you know, a child comes home from school, if they go to school, you know, private school or whatever, home school, and they come home and they're, they're on the piano and, you know, they do the 30 minutes a day trying to learn the piano. It takes instruction over and over and over again to become well-versed on the piano. The child training will also include encouragement. There's times you're, you're trying to practice or do an, learn an instrument, and as you're learning, you're getting frustrated. I just can't get it. I can't get this next step. And gently comes along the parent or the teacher, and, and they're saying, no, you need to do it this way, and just try it. Just try it. I know you can do it. I've seen, you know, and they give you the encouragement. Say, hey, you can do it. And they root you on, and, and they're your cheerleader, and they say, come on, work hard. You can do it. And, and after a while, the child picks it up and, and realizes, listen, I, I have this ability. But sometimes in the parenting, as this author goes on, includes warnings. Hey, if you do that again, you're going to get in trouble. Sometimes it's a rebuke. You ought not to say that. Don't be disrespectful. Or sometimes it might be a chastening action where discipline is needed for not cooperating or disobeying. You know, the process of that correction remains in force until the child does what is requested. The whole process of learning the piano, the whole process of encouraging and sometimes saying, listen, you need to calm down, you need to deal with your attitude, you need to just try harder, you need to work, whatever the statement is, to encourage that child to continue to learn the piano or the instrument that they're learning, that process repeats itself over and over and over and over again until they become quite proficient and they're done with the stage where you're at. He tells us in this idea of all scriptures given by inspiration of God is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And this idea is of a disciple maker, instruction in righteousness. There's an accountability. Hey, you need to practice. There's specific instruction to spur the learner on. Now, much, he says, much parenting and other forms of discipleship fail right here. For a mother to train her child to have the discipline necessary to practice the piano on his own or her own, the mother herself must have a strong measure of discipline in her own life. So if you're teaching something, you've got to have a good grasp on what you're teaching. If the mother gives in when the child complains or whines and the mom says, okay, it's just too much, I'm not going to make you do it. It's not worth the hassle. And you give up and you throw up your hands saying, I'm not doing it anymore. It's too frustrating. What the mom is displaying is she does, she's lacking the character. She might have the musical ability or something to do it. He says, in the same way, a pastor, a teacher, or other disciple maker who responds with impatience and browbeating to his church members or students' failure is not giving God the instruction in righteousness. Teaching. In fact, that some matters are so grievous that a person cannot help losing control. And so what happens is we get frustrated. 
and you just you just spew out some things that are maybe aren't so nice, and and you're displaying to the individual to whom you're trying to disciple, to whom you're trying to teach, whatever it is, that it is okay to lose control of my emotions, it's okay to lose control of my words, and say what I want to, because in this, in this situation, it's okay to lose control and just express my anger, my frustration. I can't do that as much as I want to. Because a part of being a word-filled teacher, even Jesus, even when he turned over the tables of the money changers, he did it. He said, you've made my, my house, my, the house of prayer, but you've made it like a den of robbers, or he said something to that sort. He's still instructing as he's going through this. A word-filled teacher is skillful in providing a kind of direction to the followers, a parent to the child. You know, sometimes a student in a Christian high school or maybe in home school or in a Christian university, they complain about the rules and instructions. They're, ah, oh, got to hear these again. Ah, uh, you know. Uh, the, the professors, the, the staff here, they treat us like children. And that could be true. But, I've submitted myself, and if I want to be word-filled, even the Lord Jesus Christ, when the, the Pharisees would come to him and ask him about paying his taxes, he still paid it, even though their actions were wrong. God uses, for you and I, repetition, and I'm thankful he uses repetition. He uses instruction, he uses chastening on us. If I'm going to reflect Christ to others, then I can do no less in being skillful and controlled. There needs to be an understanding, a thorough understanding of the Word of God. Second, we can recognize what is wrong and know how to humbly yet directly confront those who are overtaken in a fault. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, as it says here, let me turn there real quick, Galatians 6, 1. It tells us how to deal with an individual who is going a course of life that is undesirable, that we know is not healthy. He tells us how to deal with that situation. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. In order to be a word-filled teacher and how to help someone that is hurting, help someone that's in a bad course of life, help someone that is uh, making some wrong decisions, he tells us how to approach it. Galatians 6, 1. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore. That's your goal. Your goal is not to put a person in their place. Restore such an one in the spirit of, I'm going to put them, for, I'm going to put them down. No, he says in meekness. Considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted, put yourself in the place of the individual to whom you're addressing. A word-filled teacher knows how to guide a person in the right direction. They can teach an offending brother how to confess sins and make it right. They give diligent instruction. There's an oversight, there's an accountability to enable them to lead that person who's fallen to persevere in a godly way in their life how to be consistent in the right living. 
if you're beginning to see the powerful impact that you can have on others for Christ, if you're a God-loving example, a word-filled teacher, there's yet one more characteristic of a godly disciple. You must be a ministry-minded overseer. Now, in reflection here, some questions I want to ask you. Are you seriously studying the Word of God? Doctrinally sound books about the Word in order to become a Word-filled teacher. You know what God's called us to study? God, you said, well, that's your job, Pastor. We expect you to do it. We, no, God's called you as a believer to also study His Word. Be ready always to give an answer to everyone that asks you a reason of the hope that's in you. So studying the Word of God, even in our own families, in our own churches, in our own workplace, how do I deal with conflict? What does God say and how I'm supposed to deal with it? The second thing, does the Word of God control your thinking so much that your advice flows out of your mouth in the actual words of Scripture, or does your advice sound more like whatever counsel is popular at the moment in evangelical Christianity or in the secular mainstream? There is so much, all of this, a lot of this, what is touted as Christian psychology, Christian psychiatry, what have you, it is a blending, it's a syncretism with a godless, humanistic philosophy. And they're trying to blend humanism with Christianity and somehow mix them together for something to help someone, and it leads to confusion. And it will not lead them to the path that God has for them. I take God's word with carefulness, with gentleness, with an understanding of, of the other individual's learning capability. Or maybe where they're at in their hurt, they may not be ready to realize that they're hurt at the moment, you know, they're, they're going through some great grief, and I'm not going to just, at the time, take a sin that they've done and say, listen, dummy, look at what you just did. You don't do that. You say, listen. They need to know that someone cares. You come along, and then as you, you know, obviously they need to know about their sin. They need to know that their sin brought the, the consequences that they're in. We can't hold back, but there's some discretion in how I give it at the time there ought to be in our lives a time where god's word is studied you know we ought to double check the advice that we give by the book the word of god you know and i it doesn't do for us just to pass on to our children or others that we're trying to help uh, maybe just some things that have worked for us it ought to be what does god think you know you can ex attend a seminar or read a book and and there's things that I've gone through in the past, attending seminars or attending, watching some things on DVD and some advice, and it had a momentary change. It helped me momentarily, but in the long run, it, as I began to reflect back upon it, I realized some of the instruction I was given was not biblical. So I need to go to the book and say what does God think. Second of all, we're looking for needles in the haystack. You know, for example, a young couple and a a parent goes to a parenting seminar. Uh, they look. They learn about the child's personalities developed. You know, before age five, and you know what the the child's personality won't change much after that. And maybe this parent has a child, Johnny or whomever, age seven, and kind of a bully, and 
and just kind of, you know, the parents kind of resign themselves. Well, I guess he's a bully. He'll always be a bully, and there's nothing they can do. But this theory strips away, you know, all hope from the parents, and they're kind of now in a situation of being distraught, and they said, what do we do? There's no doubt that at the early age, a child's character and personality and stuff is cemented. But it doesn't mean that God can't change it because God's changed things in my life and he's changed things in your life. You know what? The longer we live in our self-centeredness, it's going to be harder to change some habits. It's going to be harder to become a God-loving, other-serving individual. If I've lived my life pleasing myself, serving myself, making sure I do what's good for myself, and then I accept Christ or God begins to work in my heart and show me of the grievousness of my actions, it's going to be difficult to change course. It's not impossible, but it is difficult, and thus I must be in God's Word, letting His Spirit help me, and to be a Word-filled disciple I've got to have God's word on how to deal with an individual that is struggling in a particular area. And God's word, he's done it in my, I mean, God did a tremendous work in my heart in my 20s and my 30s and and just working and and changing and and developing, and he still continues to. He's not done with me yet. He's not done with any of us yet. We haven't arrived. We're not perfect. We're not great. You know, we have work to do, and the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, continues to change us. But we ought to be refined by His Word. You know, they, a parent could attend a seminar, and, and they said, Well, the reason why my child is the way they are uh, is their inner child never grew up. You know, and then they go to another seminar and it says something else, and now they're like, ah, which seminar is right? There's conflicting ideas. <laughs> you know, and there are a lot of conflicting ideas. But what happens is we become pragmatists. You know, the end, whatever the product is, or whatever I'm desiring, is you know, how I get there. Pragmatism is the ends justifies the means. So, you know, if I want to get 100, just to give an example, if I want to get 100 on the test and I see, you know, Sally Sue, whatever, over here in her test and I look over and I see the answer and I'm like, oh, that's the missing test, you know, and here I go and, well, I got 100 on my test. That's what I wanted. Now, how I got to that 100 was unethical. So the pragmatism is the ends justifies the means. But rather than trying to look for a needle in a haystack or look for a little bit of truth in the world, why don't I go to the source of truth, God's word, and say, what does God say about the situation I'm particularly dealing with at the moment? We need a biblical understanding of the nature of man, that our hearts are evil. The next one is don't get stuck in a stage. There's a teaching that says every person who has suffered a major, major tragedy in their life, for example, the death of a loved one or news of cancer, must go through five stages of grief in order to emerge emotionally balanced in the aftermath. You know, and you can get stuck in that stage for an undetermined amount of time. But the Bible tells us, look with me at 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. And it's not that we won't grieve. I mean, Jesus grieved uh, in the idea when John the, you know, 
Lazarus died, he grieved over those who were grieving. I'm sure he grieved when John the Baptist's head was cut off. I mean, that's his own cousin. His cousin had his head cut off because he told Herod, stop, you know, you, what you're doing sleeping with your brother's wife is wrong. And he had his head cut off. But she didn't like it. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue. You know what? When my grandmother died, she was probably one of the closest individuals to my life. Now, thankfully, she's saved and she's in heaven. Was there a grief? Yeah. Was there a little, like, man, I wish I had her? Yeah. But I didn't have to go through all five stages. I went to God's word and found encouragement, kept serving, knowing that, you know what, God's called me to do, and I'll see her again someday. I don't have to go through all those steps. There's been, I had a friend of mine, my best friend, when I was in the military, and I, got a, I had just been talking with him the night before, three and a half hours, we had chatted. He and I had wonderful conversations. We'd talk about the Lord, we'd talk about life. I mean, he and I, we did a tremendous, he was quadriplegic, but we would go on trips together and just had wonderful times. He was my best friend. And I got the call the next day that his lung, he had like an iron lung, and uh, the machine had quit the night before, and uh, the night I had spoken to him, and uh, he had passed away in his sleep. I was heartbroken. I wasn't angry, but I was heartbroken. I didn't go through all those stages. I just went and said, what does God say? And went to the Lord and found reassurance and comfort. You know what? A, a tragedy of life can tempt you to anger, can tempt you to denial, or any stage of those grief that's given. But anger and the denial of sinful, but anger and the denial of the situation occurring really are sinful responses. The anger and denial are direct opponents to godliness. Those believers that would see the Apostle Paul, who had been formerly Saul, would have had to deal with this. You know what, there's always a biblical solution when we define the problem in biblical terms. So rather than taking a problem and trying to define it in a worldly context, why don't I bring it to say, what does the Bible say about this certain situation? Rather than looking, the person has an addiction, I realize, listen, they have an unbelief problem in their heart. They're dealing with it in their own way. They're not trusting God to help them in this. And now as a believer, as someone who's spiritual, we walk with them, we encourage them, we, you know, we, we try to be there for them in a, in a very gentle way. So we need to be careful how we teach others to deal with life's problems. And we need to deal with it through the lens of Scripture. And our teaching must move others closer to the goals of God, of loving Him preeminently, loving our neighbors ourselves, and moving them that individual, towards God's predetermined path of change, which is sanctification. Our teaching needs to be driven by the Scriptures. You know, our counsel must be dipped from the mainstream of divine revelation. You know, sometimes an entire counseling of parenting strategy is built on isolated passages of Scripture. You take a passage of Scripture, and you develop a whole system around that. I mean, there was that whole book, The Prayer of Jabez, and it was like one verse in Scripture, you know, or... It was just a very, and they developed a whole idea and series and everything around it, but it was just a very short prayer. 
You know what? God's word, in Isaiah 55, 11, so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. God promises to bless his word, but only for the purposes that it was designed for. And so rather than leaning upon my own understanding, I go to the ministry of repetition. I go to God's word. What does God's word say about your heart? What does God's word say about your belief in God, your faith in God? And when I leave God and I'm unchecked in my heart, and, and you know, that's sometimes as a parent, as if you're, you know, if you're teaching them how to play a piano, it's repetition, repetition, repetition. As I, my dad would teach me how to do an oil change, there was some repetition. As he taught me how to do some uh, brake job, how to change the brakes, there was some repetition. And there was things that I had to ask op- multiple times over to realign, to make sure I was doing it correctly. And God does the same with us. I need to come back to the Word of God, come back to the Word of God. And, and if you're going to be a disciple maker and you're working with someone, you're encouraging someone, you're, you're there by the side of someone who's legitimately struggling, it's going to take a repetition of God's Word to say, listen, this is what God's Word says. You may not understand it, but I promise you, I'll help you, I'll walk with you, I'll listen to you, but this is what God says you need to do. And we need to do that to check our hearts before God. I need to, you need to, we all need to. And that's why regular times with God and regular attendance at church, a Bible-preaching church, is crucial for the survival of every believer. The human heart needs constant exposure to God's Word to reprove our heart in the direction we ought to go. And so as I bring this to a close and invitation this evening, I need to double-check the advice that is given to me by the book, the book of all books, the Word of God. Instead of looking for a needle of truth in a haystack to try to solve my problem in life, I ought to come to God's Word. I don't get stuck in a stage of grief in your life. Come to God's Word. See what it is. If you're struggling, ask for help, but come to God's Word again for that help to find the recovery and the hope that you need to move forward for the Lord. And that's why there's a ministry of repetition. Sometimes you can tell someone something and tell them again and tell them again and tell them again. You're like, man, they'll never get it. Keep telling them. And because God has to keep telling us many times. You know what? To be a word-filled disciple, we want to have people that genuinely walk with God. We've got to know God's word. We've got to be, as Galatians 6.1, we've got to be spiritual and we've got to be meek for those who are struggling. And so as heads bowed and eyes closed at the time of invitation, if in order to come to know Jesus Christ and truly be reconciled to God, you must confess your sins, repent of them, means you agree with God that you're a sinner condemned to hell, and Jesus is the only way. And in simple faith, you ask Him to forgive you and be your Savior. And as a Christian, if I want to be a disciple maker, I want to be a word-filled teacher, I need to know God's Word, and I need to do it in a spirit of meekness, and in spirituality towards God to help others. Let us look to God's word, not to philosophy and humanism.